Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Yeah, so this morning I'm just going to ask for just a little bit like extra grace. Um, I'm super congested. I'm super tired. I know we're all probably really tired. Um, it's been a really busy week. It's been a really full week. Um, it's been a good week, but it's been, been busy and full. And so maybe, maybe you can relate. Maybe you've had weeks like that. Um, where you're just kind of coming into Sunday just a little bit sideways. And, um, I, yeah, that's just kind of where I'm at right now, um, just to be really honest. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get in, but, like, this is, like, the level of energy that I have to give. And so maybe, maybe this is a really good exercise for me to understand, like, the inner workings of the inner world of introversion. Like, like this is all I've got right here. Like, this is 100%. <laughs> and, it, you know, so anyways. Take that for whatever you want. It's a, it's a little lesson for me. I'm just like, all right. So, anyways, this morning, we are continuing in our series of return. We are in the middle of the season of Lent, and the season of Lent is the season of kind of that's filled with, with some really hard themes, some really hard themes. And the prophets, we're going through the prophets, and the prophets are also filled with these really hard themes. And it's hard to look at these themes kind of weak, after week after week, but like if we just look at what the season's about and kind of what the prophets kind of speak to, like there are these themes of like death and decay, there are these themes of judgment and righteousness, there's these themes of like lament and darkness and sorrow, and what I find is that these themes are incredibly difficult because they come from a place of just like deep ache and deep pain. And we live in a world and we live in society where we say, like, let's just ignore that. Let's push that to the side. Let's do our best to not engage that. Let's just put a smile on. What we see, though, what we see is that (laughs) in the prophets is that there's this, like, permission to cry out. There's this permission to cry out for justice. And there's this hope that God is going to do something in the middle of that cry, that God is going to restore his people, that he's going to restore justice, that he's going to restore what has been lost. And so what I don't want us to do is, like, to one, get tired of, of just kind of, like, repeating these themes week, week after week. I want us to, like, have the discipline of engaging them because these are human themes. These are incredibly human themes. And, like, that's what's beautiful about the prophets is that the prophets are these men who <laughs> have kind of this heart for their people and their heart breaks. And God breaks their hearts for their people. And so we have this intersection of kind of the human experience and the human heart that God has put inside of us for each other. But then we also see God enter into that story. We see God enter into that place of injustice. We see God enter into these places of brokenness and loss. And we see him in his heart to restore it. And really in the prophets and in the season of Lent, what we have is God's heart for his people for all things to be made new. But the way that he does it is that he engages in our death. He engages in our decay. He engages in our loss. He engages in our lament. And he faces these things head on through Jesus Christ. And so the good news is that God is not a God who reigns from afar. He's not a God who just sets this world into motion, waiting for it to like spin into chaos. Even though it looks like that, even though it can feel like that. I mean, it's just easy to like open the paper, to turn on the TV and just be like, this world is spinning out of control. God, 
where are you? But what we find is that the God of the Bible is a God who is incredibly near and who wants to enter into our humanness and who does enter into our humanness by taking on flesh and blood. And he opens himself up in his flesh and bloodness. He opens himself up to the experiences of death and loss and betrayal and mourning and lament. I mean, he suffers betrayal. He suffers false justice, false judgment. He suffers injustice. He suffers death. He suffers decay. I mean, he meets us in the middle of this place of kind of, of like what it is to be human. He meets us in the middle of this human experience that we all have of just that kind of like this deep ache that something's not right with the world, that something's just not right with us, that there's something going on that we need healing from, and he engages that, and he faces that head on, and he overcomes it on Easter morning, and that is good news. That is good news. Now, what I want to say, though, is that I don't mean to say that trivially. Sometimes we get so familiar with the story of Jesus, and we get right to Easter, and we just like, because we don't want to sit in the death decay part, right? Like, we don't want to sit in that. And so we just want to, like, jump to Easter and be like, he overcome Jesus? And, like, that is great news. That is good news. That is the purpose of our hope. But we sometimes miss the good news that is that Jesus, our God, came to earth as a human being and suffered with us. And that he, engage, he engages kind of what it means to be human alongside us. And that is good news, too. And so that's what I want us to kind of carry with us as we enter into this prophet of Habakkuk. So the prophet of, of Habakkuk, it's only three chapters long, uh, pretty short, um, kind of a strange book. We don't know much about Habakkuk, but he is a prophet who looks out into his world and he sees injustice and he's mad about it and he lets God know about it. And there's this conversation throughout Habakkuk that Habakkuk goes to God, lays out his complaint, God replies to him, Habakkuk's really not pleased with that, and so he goes back, cries out to God again. God replies. There's this conversation that happens between Habakkuk and God. And so if you guys have your Bibles, if you want to be in Habakkuk, we're going to be in chapter 1 to start. Chapter 1-1, Habakkuk opens with this very human and natural cry of the human experience where he looks around and he sees injustice. And this is what he says. He says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I mean, Habakkuk is mad. He is frustrated. He is like, God, why don't you see what I see? He's like, do you see this? Do you see this injustice? Do you see this suffering? Do you see that the way my people suffer? Do you see the brokenness that I see? Why are you not doing anything about it? Why? Why are you not showing up in this place? And these questions are incredibly relevant, especially at this space, and they're incredibly relevant for us because we've all been there like Habakkuk. We've been in that spot where we're like, God, don't you see? Why aren't you showing up? But especially in this place, 
God is seen to be the restorer of justice. Habakkuk is like, God, why are you silent in the middle of all of this? And so God, in his goodness and his grace, he replies to Habakkuk. But he doesn't have good news. He replies to Habakkuk, he's like, hey man, just so you know, I am going to do something about the injustice, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. And Habakkuk, he's not really, he's not really happy about this, but this is what God tells Habakkuk, before we jump ahead to that, he tells Habakkuk that he is raising up the Chaldeans, who's also known as the Babylonians, kind of the arch enemies. He's raising up the Babylonians to come and execute justice on Judah and to wipe out the injustice of the leaders of the time. And if you were Habakkuk, you'd be like, great, we just traded something that's really bad to something that's horrifically worse because the Babylonians were powerful they were evil, and like the little bit of justice that Judah was still holding on to, the Babylonians had no regard for. And so the good news to Habakkuk is God's like, yeah, I'm going to take care of that injustice, but like this greater injustice is coming. And so this is what he says. He says, behold, I'm rising up the Chaldeans. They are a bitter and hasty nation. They march through the breadth of the earth, and they seize dwellings that are not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go before themselves. The horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves, and their horsemen press proudly on. The Babylonians are a force to be recognized. They are a force to be feared. And God is saying, they're coming. They're coming because I see the injustice. I see what my people have done. And Habakkuk replies to God in great grief. And he's basically, God, that's a terrible plan. That is the worst plan I could ever imagine. What are you doing? Why are you replacing the oppressors with even greater oppressors? He's saying it's a completely another thing to befall to the hands of our mortal enemies. And God replies to Habakkuk and his frustration in all of this when Habakkuk's like, this is terrible, what are you doing? This is what God says to him. He says, and the Lord answered me in a vision. He says, make plain on tablets so he might run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. Now he's talking about the Babylonians here. He's saying the Babylonians, they're pretty proud. And he's saying, and it's not upright within him. But he says, the righteous shall live by faith. And so God's alluding to the fact that he is going to bring judgment also on the Babylonians. And that this trial that Habakkuk and his people, the righteous that they face, is going to take some time. That it's bad now, it's going to get worse, and it's going to take some time to sort it all out. And so in the middle of all of that, God gives them this encouragement. He's saying, the righteous shall live by faith. And this, in my opinion, is a really good and really true encouragement, but it's a really hard one. Because this, this exhortation to live by faith in the middle of trial is hard, and then many times it comes off very superficial. Many times it just seems 
really lacking. I mean, you're in this place where your world is crashing down, your heart is breaking, you're experiencing great hardships, and then someone comes along in the middle of all of that and says, yeah, man, just have faith. Have faith in, in Islander. You're just like, you just want to scream at them. You, you, you're just like, you don't get it. You don't get where I'm at. What do you mean just have faith? And the reason why it feels superficial when someone comes along and says, yeah, just have faith in the middle of that, it's because, like, in the middle of our trial, it kind of comes off as that, like, you're just not spiritual enough. That you are not mature enough. That if you had just enough faith, if you could just get your act together in the middle of this trial, or maybe if you could just kind of ascend to this place of higher understanding of the trial that you find yourself in, then, like, your trial wouldn't be that bad. I mean, has anyone ever been there? You guys know what I'm talking about? You guys know what I'm talking about where you're in the middle of something tough and you've been in a long season of something tough and somebody just comes along and they're like, yeah, man, just have faith. And what happens is that they actually keep on more pain and more suffering to where you're at because you're just like, I'm doing the best I can to survive. I don't have anything more to like have more faith. What are you talking about this? Have more faith and trust that I should live by faith. What are you talking about here? But what I think God is getting at in this place of encouragement to Habakkuk and to us to live by faith is actually an invitation to two things. It's an invitation, one, to mourn and an invitation to trust. That's something that we normally don't hear. That's something we normally don't get when we hear the words that we should live by faith in the middle of our trial. Normally when we think of living by faith in the middle of our trial, it says, I have to get stronger. I have to pretend that this isn't killing me the way that it is. I have to pretend that I'm okay even when my world is breaking behind me. But I believe that what it is to live by faith, and we'll see this in the life of Jesus, what it is to live by faith is to give yourself permission to mourn and to give yourself permission to trust. And to do that requires incredible courage. To mourn requires incredible courage. Because to mourn is to name something. It's to name the thing that's getting away, getting in the way of human flourishing and thriving. It's to name an injustice. It's to name a loss. It's to name that one day, someday, in the past, this thing happened to me and something was taken away from me. It's to name missed opportunities. It's to name failures. It's to name lost dreams. The scope and breadth of what we could mourn as humans is wide. But the thing is that we live in a culture of denial. We live in a culture where we deny ourselves the gift that mourning is. We live in a culture that says, don't name that thing. Don't look at that thing. If you glance at that thing, push it down, hide it, put a smile on, and live by faith, right? I mean, that's kind of the message of the world that we find ourselves in. But I want to say this morning that to mourn is a heroic act. Because if we're mourning, we're still alive. I feel like if we 
don't allow ourselves to mourn. And if we just live in the state of denial, all we're doing is just living as zombies. We're not living true to ourselves. We're not living true to our neighbor. We're not living true to our experience of what's happening in this life. And so to mourn is to name this thing that has caused great grief and great sense of deep loss in our lives. And it's here in this place of faith, in this place of life lived in faith, that we have permission to drag this stuff out. We can start dragging this stuff out before the Father because he wants, he wants to see it. He wants to hear it. He's big enough. Like when Habakkuk cries out in mourning, and he's just like, don't you see this? And then when Habakkuk cries out again and saying, that's a terrible plan, like what does God do? He answers. He hears him, and he hears him to the point where he like talks to him again, and he provides comfort to him. And he says, I am with you in the middle of this. God is saying, I am big enough for everything that you've lost, for everything that you're grieving, and I want you to pull them out. Let's stop living in this culture of denial and let's start living this life of faith where we pull these things out before God and we allow him to begin to heal some of this. Where we can begin to name the injustice. Where we get to begin to name some of the disappointment. To mourn is to allow ourselves to experience anger. It's to allow ourselves to experience disappointment. It's to allow ourselves grief and loss. Like I said last week, we don't do good at this. We're not trained in this. We don't have much ritual around this. But throughout history, up until kind of the modern century, there was so much ritual around how to deal with loss and mourning and grief. There were things that you would do physically. There were seasons. In the Jewish tradition, they have one day a year where you go to the synagogue and you just like pour out to God everything that you lost in that year. And then everyone sits together in silence. And they like mourn together as a community all that was lost in their body that year. That's powerful. That's part of healing. That's part of living this out by faith. This is part of trusting God in the middle of where we're at when it looks terrible and it looks like it's getting worse to trust that God is doing something in the middle of that. And the reality is, is that somewhere in our mourning, somewhere in our loss, we start to ask questions, right? Somewhere in the middle of, <coughs> excuse me, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of pain, we start asking questions. We start asking why. We start asking, why did this happen? Why did this happen in this way? Why did this person leave? Why did this person do that thing to me? Lamentation, if you were to translate the word lamentation, it means how. It's this question of how. It's like, how did this happen? How did we end up here? And the thing is, is that with grief and mourning and lamenting, is that we begin to, to, to like do some analysis, right? I mean, sometimes we get paralyzed by this analysis. We're like, how, why? We start playing these mind games of like filling in the story that we don't really quite know, and we're just like, what is the purpose behind all of this and what what ends up happening is that our brain kind of just like short circuits for a minute and there's this the space where it's just like we arrive at this place of like I don't know I don't know why this is happening 
I don't know how it's happening. You guys been there? You guys know what I'm talking about? You're just like, you try and play it out as far as you can, and then there's just this place where you're just like grasping, it's just like, I don't know. I just know that it hurts. I just know that something was taken from me. And the thing is, is that even if we could name the how, or if we could name the why, it wouldn't help us. I mean, if you know somebody that has died, like, you don't care about the science behind their death because they're dead. Like, you don't care that the reason why somebody dies is because the chemical ATP stops producing in your body. Like, that's not helpful information in that situation, but that's what's happened. Like, if you want to know how, why, ATP stopped. That's how we all die. That's the end of the day. But that's not helpful when we're mourning. That's not helpful when we're experiencing loss. And so the reality is that when we're in the season of lamentation or in the season of mourning, when we're in the season of grieving, what we don't need is an answer to our question of how or why. What we need is to be able to have the freedom to express it, the freedom to experience it, the freedom to say, my heart is being ripped out. Because that's a much better description than, well, ATPs just stop flowing. Like we start reaching for language and metaphor to try and <laughs> capture our experience, right? I mean, we say things like, it was like they stabbed me in the back and twisted the knife. We use hyperbole, we use allegory, we use all of these, and <clears throat> we use all of these kind of like literary devices to get at this experience because that's what grieving is about. This is why music is so significant. This is why music touches us and compels us is because music is able to name the things that we are grieving. Hey, little buddy. You're so cute. <laughs> He's fine. I don't care. <laughs> you don't care. <laughs> but music, I mean, music is so powerful because it is able to intersect us, and it's even to able to, like, give words and expression to the things that sometimes we don't even know how to name or express yet. But we've been in that season where we're like, that song, there's something about that song and those words that resonates within my soul that gives language to the pain that's inside. And so I believe that part of this call that God is calling his people to, to live by faith, that the righteous would live by faith in the season <coughs> of destruction and injustice is that we would have the freedom to mourn. That we would find permission by God in a welcoming to enter into that space with him. And then the second thing is to trust. And that requires just as much courage, just as much faith, because the trusting is that it is the hope that the, the reality of this season is not all that there is. No matter how dark, no matter how painful, that God is not done with us right here. And that can be hard to trust because there are some deep places where it seems like the grief that we are going to experience is going to be indefinite. And so there are places where it is very difficult and it is very courageous to trust that what is will not always be. That there is going to be new life beyond this space. And for as bad as we might want to jump from this space that's, this space that's so painful, because I've been there, I've been in, in painful spaces, 
and I've known and I've trusted. Life is coming. I'm like, God, bring life. Bring life quickly. Like, can't we just jump from this space that's so painful and jump to this space of new life? And he's like, yes, but like, you don't get to jump from one to the other. What you need to do is have faith and live faithfully and mourn. Mourn and trust. Mourn and trust. And then eventually you walk out of that. And you find yourself in a new season of new life and new joy. And you find that God was walking with you that whole time. He even encourages Habakkuk in the verses before. He says, if it seems slow, wait, it will come. I mean, God tells us to wait all the time. If he gives this like extra kind of like emphatic of like, if it feels slow, wait. Like, I just feel like God is just kind of like telling me because, because it's, it's hard. We don't like mourning. We don't like pain. But God is saying, it's okay. Don't push it down. Allow yourself to experience it. And if that process seems slow, wait and trust and know that there is a new day of new life coming. It will come. This morning I started our conversation about Jesus' humanity. And what I want us to see is that Jesus embodies this lived faith. That he embodies what it is to mourn and to trust. In many ways, God, I mean, Jesus is God with us. That's what Jesus means, Emmanuel. And what he does is that he comes to this earth and he mourns alongside us. In many passages in the New Testament where we read in our nice English translation Bibles that Jesus had compassion on the crowds, if you were to translate the Greek more literally, it would say that his bowels stirred within him. I mean, that's kind of graphic, but like he's saying Jesus has a physiological response to the injustice and the brokenness that's happening in the world. It's not this compassion of like, ah, you cute children, my little lambs, like let me bring. No, he feels it in his guts. His bowels churn. Are you with me? Have you guys been there? Have you been to that place where you just, you feel it in your gut? This is the weight that Jesus carries around with him as he's with us and as he looks upon his people. And when he says that they're like sheep without a shepherd, this is what's going on inside of him. He is mourning the loss that his people don't know him. And he's coming to fix it. We also see Jesus mourn in another way. Throughout much of Jesus' life, he is very confident of the resurrection. Very confident. He's like, tear this temple down. It'll be rebuilt in three days. He's telling his disciples, look, guys, I'm going to have to go die. I'm going to have to go do these things, with the, but I'm coming back. Like, we see Jesus, like, very confident of the resurrection. He knows his purpose. He knows where he's going. Then it comes to actually doing it. And I don't know if you guys know this, but it's like, I've noticed this, but, like, Jesus, his whole mentality kind of, like, shifts. Even in the book of John where Jesus is seen as, like, the king of his own execution where he is in control the whole way and he's going with full purpose. Even in John, even in that book, we see Jesus shift and he begins to engage this place of mourning. He begins to engage this place of his humanness and what it is to fully and completely die. We see this with the Last Supper, right? He starts a ritual for his followers to say, look, you're about to experience some heavy mourning. I'm going to give you some tools to process that. Here's this bread. 
It's been broken for you. Here's this cup. It's my blood. It's been poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this when you remember me. Do this when you gather. It's almost like Jesus is preparing them, saying, like, I hope this meal is a meal of healing for you as you mourn what's about to happen next. You see Jesus almost beginning to mourn what's about to happen with his friendships as they're about to betray him. We see him then go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he begins to pray and weep and (laughs) sweat drops of blood. He is in agony. He is mourning what's about to happen to him. We see him captured, beaten, torn, nailed to a cross. On the cross, he starts delegating the care of his mom. Now, if Jesus knows he's coming back in three days, why do that, right? Like, mom, I'm going to come back. We don't see that. We don't see that on the cross. We don't see that like, hey, mom, it's cool. Calm down. You don't see him trying to chill anyone out at the cross. He's letting them fully engage the loss that's happening and the separation that's happening. So much so that he's delegating to John, take care of my mom because I'm going away. He's engaging fully what it is to die, what it is to suffer, what it is to mourn, what it is to be in this place of loss. He's not trusting in Easter full away. I mean, he is in the background. In the background, he knows it's there. In the background, he knows it's only three days, but that's not what he's living out of. He's living out of this place of like this, is hard, and this is raw, and this is real, and this is human. And I've come here to be with my people and experience what my people experience and feel, and I'm here to be with them. And so Jesus dies, and he's buried. Breath leaves his lungs. He's beaten up. He's torn. He's tattered. He experiences decay. He's wrapped in the tomb. He's there. For three days. But in the middle of the cross experience, there is still trust. There is still trust that in three days, God's going to bring him back to life. That God is going to resurrect him. That God is there with him. That death is not going to have the last word even though his last words are, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? His last words are words of lament and power and separation and mourning and loss. But he still trusts that he will overcome all of this. This, I believe, is what it is to live by faith, to be able to have permission to enter into mourning, and to trust through it. To trust that this is not the end. And that no matter how much death, no matter how much decay, no matter how much ash has been spread, that new life can come out of it. As we continue in the book of Habakkuk, God tells them that justice is going to be fall on the Babylonians. It's going to be even worse than what the Babylonians are going to execute on Judah. But you're going to have to wait. He continues into the final chapter. In Habakkuk, he turns to this place of writing a hymn. The last chapter of Habakkuk, chapter 3, is this hymn to God. He turns to music in his morning. And the music in his morning is not 
one of lament, but it's one of praise. And I think it's kind of unfair that we get Habakkuk smashed together in three quick chapters because I don't think it happens that fast. I don't think it's like, God, look at this injustice. Look, it's going to get worse. God, that's a terrible plan. Yeah, but justice is going to come. Just live as faith. Like, there's this process that Habakkuk is going through that gets him to chapter 3. He's going through this living by faith of what it is to mourn and what it is to trust that gets him to this place where he, in the middle still of his mourning, because nothing physically has changed in his life yet, everything's still barren, everything's still destroyed, but he gets to this place of hope and praise. And this is a little bit of like what his soul is singing at the end of his experience <laughs> with God and conversation with God. And so this is what he says in Habakkuk chapter 3, as he laments, as he mourns, as he processes, as he trusts in God to save him. He says this, he says, Though the fig tree should not bloom, nor fruit be on the vines. So there's no trees that are blossoming, no fruit on the blinds. It says the olive is going to fail. The fields are going to produce no food. The flock is going to be cut off from the fold. There'll be no herd in the stalls. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So he's saying, though the trees lay bare, yet I will rejoice. Though famine strikes the land, yet I will rejoice. Though all my possessions are lost, yet I will rejoice. Though that there is no evidence whatsoever that things are going to get better anytime soon, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. This is what Habakkuk is saying. My question to us is, what is our though? What is our though? Habakkuk's though was the trees and the famines and the possessions and the injustice of the people. What is our though in this kind of refrain, this though and yet? For some of us, maybe our though is that our child is sick. Maybe our parents are sick. Maybe we have a friend that's sick. Maybe we've lost a child. Maybe we've lost a parent. Maybe we've lost a friend. Maybe God has just put a, a burden on you for refugees or for orphans or for the oppressed in our city. And that just keeps you up at night and it, it churns your gut like Jesus is. Maybe you're in a financial situation that you're just bleeding out, but you have no idea how to talk about it to anybody. You're afraid. Maybe you're in a place where your though is a very hard work situation. Maybe your though is that you don't have a work situation. Maybe your though is that your marriage is a mess and you don't know how to talk about it. Maybe your though is that you're lonely or that you're just burnt out. I don't know what our those are. We all have a though, though. <laughs> we all have a though that we're walking through, and they're important. And I believe that it's in this place of our though that we can turn to Jesus in the middle of it, who has walked this road before and who has overcome it. And so it's my prayer that in the middle of our though, in the middle of our loss, in the middle of our grief, that we would trust Jesus as our yet. And we would say, though my life is this, though my experience is this, 
though I don't know if it's going to change for a long time yet, I trust that I will not run away, that I will not live in a life of denial anymore, that I will experience fully where God has me right now, and I will trust in Him. And as we mourn, we will also find strength in the voice of Jesus proclaiming, this is not the end. And I am here to make all things new again. This is the heart of Habakkuk. This is the heart of our God. I want you to know that you have freedom to mourn, that you have freedom to trust, and that our God is with us. And that is good news. You guys pray with me. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this season of Lent, the season that we anticipate the resurrection, that we anticipate this overcoming of death, that we anticipate new life and celebration in relationship with you. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to enter into our those and to be candid, to let us begin to draw out maybe even years of things that we've been living in denial. That we'd be able to pull those out in faith, in trust and confidence of you, that you would begin to heal us. That you'd begin to move us out of these seasons of death, decay, injustice, and towards new seasons of life and flourishing and of promise. God, I pray that you would come near and that you would provide your healing, that you would come quickly. God, I know you tell us to wait. I know you tell us to wait patiently. God, we cry out to you in the middle of our patience. Come, Lord Jesus, come and come quickly. And God, give us your strength to be patient in the middle of waiting. God, give us the strength to have faith, to walk in faith when we have none. God, help our unbelief as our experiences look so contradictory that you are near. God, I pray this week that you would show up in powerful ways, that you would affirm that you are near, that you are close to us, that we are your people, God. Lord, we celebrate your salvation. We celebrate that you came and that you suffered and that you died alongside of us and that you give us new hope. God, give us that hope as we praise and worship you, that though we find ourselves in this place, yet we would praise you in your salvation. Amen.